0: this is going to be a contested environment. So as much as I can do from an automation and an AI standpoint on the platform itself to perhaps only send out what is necessary to those that actually need it is an area that we're, we're heavily looking into and, and working on. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is
1: the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Maradian. We're going to explore the future of unmanned aircraft with Mike Shortsleeve, the strategy chief at General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. And of course, AirPower Needs Weapons and Mark Montgomery of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, who joins us to talk about the Biden administration's plan to buy more long-range strike munitions. And we'll have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of
2: fighter aircraft engines to help the US maintain its air power advantage. The XA100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster and fight
0: harder.
1: Learn more at geaerospace.com/xa100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage and Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors are command and control coverage. What's in the news this week, JJ, on All Wings Considered? Well, Vago, it's congratulations
2: to the Chief, General C.Q. Brown. The reports have now been confirmed that he will be nominated as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In other news this week, the U.S. has approved F-16 training for Ukraine, not U.S. F-16s, but they're allowing other countries to use F-16s while training Ukrainian pilots. Some legislation introduced in Congress by Representative and former Brigadier General Don Bacon would require the Air National Guard to keep 25 squadrons and would make sure the Guard got the latest and greatest equipment. We'll keep an eye on that as markup and conference proceed. B2s are flying again after a safety pause. The Air Force doesn't want to talk about the incident that inspired the safety pause except to note that, well, it's now over. The Government Accountability Office took a close look at the T-7 trainer program and thinks it's all going to be about 10 years behind schedule. Boeing and the Air Force don't agree, but it's pretty certain that we won't see that jet when we expected to, and anybody making spare parts for T-38s just went out and ordered a new cabin cruiser. Under the new START agreement, the outboard pylon mounts on B-1s were deactivated to emphasize that the plane could not carry nuclear weapons. Well, some of those are getting switched back on now that Russia has backed out of the treaty. And Boeing has devised a mount to go on those outer pylons to launch hypersonic weapons for testing. It's not clear to me how it could launch hypersonic weapons for testing and not be able to launch hypersonic weapons in other circumstances. But so far, at least the Air Force hasn't changed its plan to retire the bones. Watch that space. And Poland continues to build big air power plans. They're already getting F-35s and a bunch of new U.S. helicopters. Now they're buying airborne early warning aircraft from Sweden.
1: It's almost as if their neighborhood isn't as friendly as it used to be. Bago? couple of really good ones uh, in there, J.J., well uh, well done. First, we uh, congratulate uh, General Brown on uh, his journey to become the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And obviously, we thank General Milley for his uh, service at a very difficult and challenging time. Uh, so fair winds following seas. And we're going to discuss all of that more on tomorrow's podcast uh, with the roundtable. It's, it's interesting on the T7, Secretary Kendall uh, was quoted talking about the challenges associated with going to a purely digital design, obviously mm-hmm. the T-7 uh, was designated at one point, the ET-7 for the first thing, the E-series airplanes that were going to be all electronically designed. And then as much as you can do that, uh, you get into challenges. And I do think, mm-hmm. um, I, I think it's pretty much of a safe bet that the pylon on the bones is going to be able to launch more than just test weapons.
2: One of the interesting things about electronic design is that it makes it much faster and more efficient to get to the wrong answer. If your basic concept is flawed, the fact that it's digital doesn't fix that concept. With regard to the B-1s, yes, we don't know what those pylons are ultimately going to carry, but don't be surprised to see the Air Force start to waver on whether to take those aircraft out of service. They're very expensive to keep running, but all of the studies say you need more bombers and... They're not quite ready to increase the B-21 order officially yet.
1: Do we eventually join our allies in sending F-16s? Well, as you've pointed out before, Vago,
2: the United States has done every time in this conflict what they said they weren't going to do after somebody else did it first. And F-16s may be just the final example of that, where other countries are going to supply them, we're allowing them to be supplied, and eventually the United States follows on. Whether they are going to be able to make a meaningful difference in this conflict is an entirely different question. We've talked before about the apparent stalemate in the skies due to the proliferation of defense systems, and the Russians aren't flying that many manned aircraft right now for the F-16s to engage. If they're used in a ground attack role, for example, to relieve uh, or rather to help wear down defenses around some of the cities the Russians have taken then they might be very useful. And that
1: could be a game changer. One of the concerns uh, that the White House has had, and I'm just looking at the news flow, uh, mm-hmm. and again, we're going to discuss this in greater detail, when US intelligence says, well, we think the attack on the Kremlin was done by Ukraine, uh, that's sort of sending a message to Kiev. Um, and, and then you had, um, you know, what could have been US weapons supplied to Ukraine being used against uh, Russia proper that's been a concern the administration has had do you think that this whole episode has any impact
2: I'm just a simple air power analyst but if we have are in a geopolitical situation where the russians see US systems being used to attack the russian homeland that winds up being a very different situation than are helping Ukraine repel Russians from Ukraine. On the air power side, though, if an F-16 crosses the border to fly over Russia and it has a Ukrainian roundel on the side of it, do the Russians know whether that F-16 came from Poland or came from the United States or who
1: owned it before the Ukrainians? It's not necessarily clear that they would. Indeed. And joining us now is the Vice President for Strategy and Business Development at General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Mike Shortsleeve. Uh, he has been involved with unmanned aerial vehicles for decades as an operator, acquirer, and now a planner and a visionary. Mike, welcome to the Air Power podcast. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, I should also point out that General Atomics Aeronautical Systems is also uh, the sponsor of our uh, strategy uh, series. JJ, why don't you start us off?
2: Mike, it's not too much to say that General Atomics defined and created the market for medium-altitude, long-endurance, uncrewed platforms, and those systems were validated in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. Now that those wars are over, though, folks are asking questions about the relevance of that capability in contested airspace. What has GA been learning from the Ukraine war and the use of unmanned systems that's shaping your future investments and programs? And are there ways to keep medium altitude, long endurance UAVs like Reaper relevant in a modern air defense environment?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question, JJ. I I would start off by first saying that medium altitude, long endurance, unmanned platforms is still very relevant, not only today in in the environments that we're seeing in the Ukraine, but also going to be very relevant in the future as well. Uh, The platforms themselves offer some, some capabilities that aren't necessarily available out there to say manned aircraft in the sense of the ability to have persistence, the ability to have standoff capabilities, the ability to carry and add different types of pods or sensors to the payloads to allow it to be able to participate in any effort that you would want. Certainly, I think from the lessons learned, there's a couple of things that I would take away of what's going on in, in the Ukraine. And, and first and foremost, it's it's certainly the advent or, you know. The, the hallmark of what we're going to see in the future is that unmanned type capabilities in all sizes are going to play a factor in any kind of engagement or conflict of the future. And I say that because what we're seeing, at least from my perspective, as I look at the situation there, is that it's the application of unmanned aerial systems at the tactical, the operational, and the strategic level. So when you really look at the future and kind of where things are going for unmanned capabilities, I would categorize it as it's a family of systems that you're going to see at all different levels and all different sizes, executing a wide variety of mission sets. How we're doing things today to kind of keep the things relevant? Well, first and foremost, adding additional things like automation to speed up the fusion of data, perhaps, or doing edge computing so that you're not relying necessarily on having capabilities going back to other locations for analysis. You want to do that as far forward as you can. So we're we're investing heavily and in looking very much at how you can actually deliver that decision advantage and create decision space for whoever it is. It could be a three striper to a three star to even a national level political entity. So that's one area that we're looking at. The, the other areas is, is obviously the one question that always comes up is about survivability. When you talk about a, a peer level type fight with uh, modern long range SAM systems. And, and I will say mm-hmm. that certainly if you looked at a piece of paper and you looked at the range, you could say, well, yeah, it's going to be able to take something out. But that's not how these capabilities are employed. So even today, you know, the MQ-9 is still extremely useful in that environment. Uh, because of the way you operationally would plan it. You don't fly it alone and unafraid over a threat area unless you absolutely needed it to do that, uh, which the intel value that you'd collect from it may be more than the cost of the aircraft. But the reality is the platform can stay on the fringes. And also you're going to operate it with other capabilities. So the ability to flex and move with the platform and carry multitude of payloads still makes it extremely relevant to what's going on today.
1: Let me build on that a little, uh, Mike. The DoD went from buying several hundred of these aircraft a year to just handfuls of them. Congratulations on the new MQ-9s for the Marine Corps. In the meantime, you guys have been sort of investing in payloads, right? You guys can put Sona uh, buoy dispensers on the Sea Guardian. Uh, You guys developed the Mojave, which can help customers convert their Reapers into a short takeoff and landing variant that can operate from austere locations as well as amphibious assault ships. You guys are testing the capability with the Royal Navy now. You guys have even developed the Sparrowhawk, which is an unmanned aircraft that can be deployed from a reaper and recovered from a reaper which is a first where do you see sort of this market going and some of the discrete products you're developing with this umbrella of systems uh, as you guys work to convince your customers that there is a lot of there there right i mean the the department was saying I'm taking a pause on buying reapers waiting for the next big thing part of that next big thing is collaborative combat aircraft but then it's also the sort of meaty part of the market that might not be as exquisite, for example, as a CCA.
0: Again, I think, you know, obviously, I, I discussed a little bit about some of the advantages that you could do today with the MQ9, and that market space for that type of mission set or that type of platform is going to be there. I mean, the future is certainly going to be an unmanned future, I would say. Uh, and an autonomous capability in those platforms is where the future lies. And so those are the areas that we're looking at very closely and we're investing in to advance those type of capabilities that would deliver these autonomous collaborative type platforms that could fulfill a multitude of roles across the traditional mission sets from Strike to ISR to your typical comm node, those types of things. And in most cases, the platforms as we look forward and the way we're designing them very typical to what you find with the MQ-9 and the Gray Eagles today is that they're multi-role platforms and in some cases, multi-mission platforms. So the the future, I really do believe, is more in the autonomous realm, but you're gonna see a lot of these out there. And the reason for that is really to get at the heart of this is that the speed of warfare is going to be much faster. The threats are more prolific. And then I would also say that just the ability to have enough aircrew, Uh, enough people to operate the capacity that's going to be required to execute a war against an adversary at a theater level with thousands of targets, right? You just cannot produce enough aircrew in a short manner to be able to, to replenish in some cases, unfortunately. And so this is where I think Unmanned plays into this. This is, you know, it's sort of the default answer of where you're going to have to go in the future to fulfill that capacity gap because you're just not going to have enough of these other capabilities to do that. Vago mentioned the collaborative
2: combat aircraft. That's the biggest potential program out there right now. The Air Force's adjunct for the next generation air dominance fighter for F-35 and maybe some other platforms. They're talking about buying as many as a thousand CCAs with dozens of companies expected to compete. Your Avenger Jet UAV shows that you've got relevant capability. What are the attributes a CCA will need given the future of a threat and what you're seeing the Air Force and eventually the Navy wanting to be able to do with it?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, when we when you talk in the larger umbrella of what these platforms are, really, they're unmanned combat aerial vehicles, right? That term has been around for several years. But ultimately, that's really what you're trying to achieve here is the ability to have these unmanned capabilities fulfill roles that had traditionally been done by manned aircraft. So as exactly like you pointed out, you know, the Air Force has made comments of a thousand CCAs. Uh, That's just a clear indicator that the direction of the future for any kind of Air Force is going to be that. And and I would argue and say that, you know, it's not just unmanned aircraft are just going to be in enormous amounts in Air Forces of the future, but they're actually going to be a core facet. Air forces in the future will not be able to operate unless they have these things executing a variety of different mission sets. So as you look at this as a whole, you know, the reality starts to come to fruition that what are the types of capabilities exactly needed or what are those attributes that are going to help in that future environment? Well, you you have to kind of turn things on their head. You can't look at it from a platform specific standpoint. So at, at General Atomics, we view it as a capability. And this is exactly, I think, in line kind of what what you hear the the Air Force talking about when they say they want to team F-35s and and NGAD with unmanned aircraft. It's a capability that you're trying to bring to to the fight that's out there, whether it's in a competition phase or in the actual conflict phase. So those attributes, what do those have to be? Right. Well, one, certainly, if you're looking at the China fight, you got to have range, uh, just the ability to get there. Right. And you also have to have the ability to you don't want to overtask the air refueling portion of the war fighting because that's already going to be overtasked with manned aircraft. So you want to have the range and persistence, and that includes speed as a factor for that, right? Do you need something fast or can it be slow? It depends on how far you want to go and how long you want to stay in the area. So there's a, there's a little bit of play in there. And then the payload aspect of this, right? That's the key. You want to be able to agilely develop new or iterative process that is in place so that you can replace say, different types of sensors, or you can react to the environment and change things out as quickly as possible. So open architectures, you know, that's a standard that's going to have to be there. Modularity, the ability to tailor these capabilities. And then touching back a little bit about what I talked about with survivability. Survivability is more than just having the ability to avoid a missile coming at you. But in that future environment, you have to be able to avoid a missile that's coming on the airfield that you're going to be at as well. So the agile combat employment that the Navy and the Marines and the Air Force have all been working heavily on, and to include even the Army, the ability to disaggregate yourself as quickly as possible and conduct operations from anywhere. And so these future platforms have to have that ability to be agilely deployable in an expeditionary fashion. So you can't be tied to large fixed air bases. You have to have the ability to takeoff and land from shorter distances, whether it's smaller airfields or perhaps it's a soccer field in some cases of kind of how we look at it with our Mojave short takeoff and landing capability. So you have to take some of these things into consideration from the attributes. And then I would also add probably what I think is the most important thing to the future types of unmanned capabilities is that autonomous aspect, right? You have to have some form of You know, for lack of a better term, an artificial intelligence overlay, right? That is supervised autonomy where you have a human on the loop being able to actually direct these platforms where they go within specific guidelines of what you need them to do. Because again, the battle space is going to be much larger than your traditional what we see today in in the Middle East and in the the wars that have been there. And even to a certain extent, the the battle space that exists, you know, along the front lines in, in the Ukraine. We're talking about vast amounts of ocean, vast amounts of uh, regional space. And then again, you would have to consider if you're taking on a peer adversary that there's going to be a global impact in some cases to be able to have awareness in other areas that flare ups could happen.
1: You guys are a privately owned uh, company uh, that both gives you certain advantages, certain disadvantages uh, as as well. You're a niche and unique player, but you guys also pride yourselves on developing both your own technology, whether it's manufacturing technology, but the hard technology, but then also being kind of a rapid adapter, right? You talked about the importance of uh, autonomy. AI is sort of the hot topic uh, here in some ways it's becoming more accessible, in some ways it's becoming less accessible. As you guys look at enabling, I mean, I'm sorry, I think the Sparrowhawk is one of the coolest aircraft. I also give you kudos to the name for folks who don't know the importance of or the significance of it. It was the Curtis Sparrowhawk, the small fighter that was deployed from the bellies of the Akron class, rigid airships the United States Navy operated, the Akron and the Macon, uh, which was just terrific. Talk to us about how you guys are looking at using AI And what do you think are going to be the most important enabling technologies as you develop, right? Because we're looking at an interesting future, unmanned aircraft, deploying unmanned aircraft, unmanned aircraft, refueling unmanned aircraft, as you said, right? As you're looking at the strategic future, these are game-changing innovations.
0: Oh, yeah, most definitely. And, And I think that's, you know, for me, that's the exciting part about working at General Atomics is it truly is a, you know, the culture here is one of revolutionary thinking, You're constantly looking at how could you change certain paradigms that exist out there. And, you know, the company, you could, you know, again, argue that we have sort of that track record of doing that, right? We are willing and able to be the first mover and spend our own dollar on trying out something that is going to change the way that operations are conducted. Because ultimately, everything that we're doing here is about delivering the right type of capability to those soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that are out forward, Right the intent really is let's make sure that the risk is less to them or that they have the necessary capabilities to execute those operations. So autonomous operations in the future is a big factor of this. And and artificial intelligence and machine-to-machine interaction is going to be critical to this. So we've actually placed a heavy emphasis on that and are making large investments into that type of activity to the point that we're demonstrating where you have multiple unmanned aircraft working together without a human in there directing them to communicate or talk to each other but they're actually given a problem set and they they go out and they execute their operations in a collaborative fashion with just the unmanned aircraft you know and then the ability to to layer in the manned portion of that to where now you would have manned and unmanned teaming in that aspect but i'll say that certainly the greater speed and intensity of of future warfare is really going to require all these systems to have some kind of automation And it's not, again, just to reduce the manpower, right? But it's really to enable operations that you reduce the burden also of the tactical data that's going across transport networks, right? This is going to be a contested environment. So as much as I can do from an automation and an AI standpoint on the platform itself to perhaps only send out what is necessary to those that actually need it, is an area that we're, we're heavily looking into and, and working on. So our effort isn't just to employ artificial intelligence and say the autonomous flight aspect, it's really looking at it from the mission standpoint. We're looking at across the board from your operations on the ground to get an aircraft going, how can that be automated? We're looking at how can you do the tasking in an automated fashion through with AI? How can you do that fusion of the sensor when it's actually out there collecting? We've developed a a few things that give you some insight. I would also tell you that if you kind of really want to look at what the future looks like for unmanned aircraft, take a good hard look at how the MQ-9 does things today and how it's built. The size, weight, and power allows it to be extremely flexible, right, multi-role, true multi-role, multi-mission type platform that I always say is sort of a pod away from doing different mission sets but it also is employing automated capabilities. Uh, the ability for it to auto take off and land is something that's you know a game changer in most cases, because now I don't have to have a large group of people forward to actually do the landing or takeoff of the aircraft. That's all can be done autonomously, which arguably is probably the most dangerous time of any aircraft. Most accidents are going to occur on the takeoff and landing. And if you've automated that, that Alleviates some of that, but it also alleviates weather issues, right? If it can automatically take off and land, it can adjust for bad weather or fly in even you know uh, typical weather that we wouldn't want to launch in. So there are a lot of advantages that we look at as a whole when we talk about artificial intelligence and automation. And again, that in our mind is a key attribute to any kind of future capability that's going to
3: exist out there.
2: DOD and particularly the Air Force have had some creative ideas lately about how to manufacture aircraft. Splitting design from production, for example, production from sustainment. Vago and I have both visited Poway and seen the plant and how flexible your manufacturing concept is. Do you see General Atomics ever moving to produce inhabited aircraft, whether your own design or someone else's? And what does the company see as your core technological strengths?
0: I would say that, you know, I mean, there's always a possibility of that. But to be honest with you, our our expertise lies in uncrewed aircraft. Um, That's where we have become experts in. That's where we have the years of experience. And we've got several individuals, even within the company, that were there at the very beginning and are looking at how this could be applied in the future. So I don't want to say that it's, it's a no, but the reality is that that doesn't fit who we are and what we do. I will say that from the standpoint of where the company is and where we're going and how we look at manufacturing, I have to tell you, we've got some really different ways of looking at it uh, and different concepts to get there. You know, first off, obviously, everybody is using, well, I don't want to say everybody, but most people are using digital engineering tools, which obviously give you an advantage, right? You can do a lot in the in the digital environment to design your aircraft. We also use model-based uh, software engineering as well, right? We want to put it in a model so that not only are you doing the digital engineering, but you have this model-based capability to actually kind of see what it looks like. We do a lot of simulations with our capabilities as well. What, what would it really look like in this environment? If it were to, you know, operate, how would that look like and how could we improve some of that? Um, and then you actually got to get to the point where you're going to, you know, either bend metal or you're going to put together composites, right? This is the actual manufacturing aspect of this. And and we've done a tremendous job in getting out in front of this with our additive manufacturing center that we've created Uh, within the company itself. And this is about CNCs cutting parts. This is about 3D printing. This is about bringing costs down and making these capabilities even more affordable than what they are today. There are more than 10,000 components in a various aircraft that are built by General Atomics today. And really, a lot of those parts, we're looking at how can you apply additive manufacturing to that. So as an example, our MQ-9B today that's out there and operating, 240 parts were actually built through additive manufacturing and 3D printing from that aspect, and that roughly is about $300,000 per aircraft that you save in recurring costs. So the ability to, to move yourself into this direction to do that manufacturing in a different way and utilize how technology is transforming that, that's been part of our hallmark of how we've done business. Now, I also take a step here and kind of highlight a little bit about, it's also the approach you take to this, right? We uh, kind of talked to Uh, our gambit concept that has been out there. I think people have seen it. And and really what we're looking at is you could even bring down those costs even more if you develop a capability that has a core baseline, right? Think of it as a chassis. And then you put whatever outer mode line that you want, right? What type of aircraft do you really want it to be? Do you want it to be a fighter? Do you want it to be a reconnaissance? Do you want it to be a comm node, air refueler? Whatever it is that you want it to do, you're going to build that on the outside of that. But by building that core variant, portion, and if you build it in multitude, um, that in turn allows you to actually bring the cost even further down, uh, because now you're really just adding additional wings based on what it is you need, additional engines, those types of things, so I would equate that to similar to like if you were visiting an automotive factory, right, the chassis goes down the line, if it went left, it becomes an SUV, if it goes right, it's a truck, right, you put that outer portion that you want into this, so this concept of changing the way that not only how you actually build aircraft from design standpoint with this core variant effort under Gambit, but also just the mere fact of production, of building it in a sense that additive manufacturing, 3D printing. Traditionally, some of these parts, you would have to have multiple people actually welding the pieces together. Well, if you can print that out, you've had the ability to actually reduce your touch labor costs.
1: Mike, I want to ask you uh, something which I used to talk to Neil Blue about a long time ago, which was exportability of of the technology. And indeed, these conversations have continued with Dave uh, Alexander as well, right? The barriers to entry for this capability are dropping. Abe Caram's original design, you the know, is the iNAP, that's right, JJ, right, is, is the tar You guys continue to develop the technology from the Predator to the Reaper, and indeed try to advance it. The United States still has a very restrictive approach to who can get this capability, even among its allies and partners. And ultimately, some of those allies and partners are turning to, to the Chinese. How does US export control approaches have to change? I talked about this a little bit uh, on Tuesday's show with uh, Bill Greenwald. Uh, of the American Enterprise Institute. How does the export control regime have to change as the technology and its availability changes if the United States both is going to continue to support its allies and partners, but also not leave commercial orders on the table that other people are taking advantage of? Yeah, it's
0: a great question. And, and I would say to that, first off, as you see these this market space growing, right, with additional companies coming in and building different capabilities. That's just evidence that everything is moving to the unmanned realm, as I was talking about earlier. As far as the export restrictions and things like that, those are being worked through. But I will say that I will turn to the national defense strategy on that, where a critical part of that strategy relies on the ability to leverage and work with our allies and partners. So the, the export controls in some cases need to take that into consideration that The ability for us to have that first day interoperability, if if you're using light type capabilities, can really contribute to the way that the the U.S. as a whole is going to to fight a war in the future. So from that perspective, I think rolling in and looking at the reliance that's going to have to happen in a future fight should help to drive what we could export. And that can certainly be a multitude of different things, not just unmanned aircraft. It could be other capabilities as well let me add one, one additional thing there on that question. The State Department really is looking at the different rules for FMS. They're also planning to look at the different UAS policies that exist out there and perhaps some of the restrictions associated with them. And so really, you know, we're kind of looking forward to see how all of this works out. But from a government standpoint, they really are trying to work hard at trying to, to address this issue that is out there. And uh, certainly we're going to want to continue to watch that closely.
2: Mike Shortsleeve from General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, thank you so much for taking us through the world of UAVs, and we look forward to learning about your next invention before anybody else does.
0: Sounds good. Thanks again for having me. Thanks a lot, Mike. And hey, if you
2: like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts, Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber
1: networks, chips and more. It's hosted by Vago Meradian. And joining us now is Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral who served as the Director of Indo-Pacific Commands Operations. He is now the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is also the Executive Director of the Cyber Solarium 2.0 Project. Mark, uh, great to have you on the program. It's always a pleasure uh, having you join us. Thank you, Vago. Great to be here. In the Indo-Pacific, platforms and weapons need range, and that's kind of fundamental what we're seeing both uh, in the next generation air dominance aircraft as well as FAXX, the Navy's aircraft, that you know increase the range of our combat aircraft. Uh, there is also a need to stretch the ranges of our weapons out and also to deepen our magazines. You participated in a war game at CSIS that I observed, and even in a notional 2026 crisis, you as the warfighter ran out of both LRASMs the long range anti ship missile as well as uh, the JASM uh, ER the joint air to surface standoff missile the administration has been boosting orders of both weapons we recently saw a 1.2 billion dollar contract is this enough to deepen our magazines at the speed we need to to serve as a deterrent and if necessary fight
3: well you know you've hit on a great topic a while ago, which is munitions and as uh, most of us know it's been a bill payer for more than a decade. In other words, we've always ordered less than the initial request from the services based on the combatant commander inputs. And it's because it, we always thought we could go back to the provider and very quickly restock. We now know that's not true. Having observed Javelin and other systems, 155 rounds in Ukraine, that wasn't true. So this persistent you know, lack of investment and the long-range strike that we need for China you know, it's it's come to roost. Um, you're right. In war games, you run out of the, uh, you probably need a 1,000 or 1,200 L-RASM. We probably have about 200 uh, from what you can tell unclassified. So you run out, you know, in the first 24 to 48 hours. So we need a few things to happen. First, we need to have uh, more L-RASM. And, and uh, the latest budget, uh, as described by Deputy Secretary Hicks, does exactly what she said. It buys the max we can buy now, which is unfortunately, unfortunately is around 100, but she also puts money in to back up the money Congress put in last year to increase our capacity to build more. In other words, we're, we're using industrial policy to build more and she's asking for multi-year contracting authority. And I think if you do all these together, in other words, if you buy the max and raise what the max could be in the future, you're going to get your El Now, unfortunately, we're not going to get them in the numbers we need in the end to 2029, 20, uh, 2028, 20, 2029, 20, 2030. 20, so I would also say there's a second thing we can do, which is take a look at some of the alternatives that give you longer range strike. Can you put something on a JDAM and make it, you know, have an anti-ship seeker and, and, and uh, you know, I, I guess a powered JDAM so you get the range. So these are pretty important things that we need to be investigating. Fund the weapons we have now. Look for some lower cost alternatives so that we can really get them in numbers in the future and, and create challenges. Because if we don't, what you learned in the war game when you watched me when we played this war game, if you give yourself enough munitions, you can drive down the U.S casualty rate remarkably. you can drive it down to 20 or 30 percent of what it would of what it would have been and certainly you know save half the aircraft you would have lost. So there's a lot we can do. Congress and the administration have done it in the 23 budget, 23 appropriations and the 24 presidential budget submission. Now we need the 24 appropriations to seal the deal.
2: Let me follow up on both of the points you raised. First on industrial base. There are almost two industrial bases for munitions. We have the artillery and iron bomb folks who are focused on the energetics. And some of those are in facilities that go back to before the second world war. And then we have longer range weapons that are almost miniature aircraft in sophistication. Is either of those more challenging to scale and to surge? and going beyond those do we need more of what we're already making or as you say do we need different long range weapons to deter and if necessary fight china what kind of characteristics should they have
3: no you're you're absolutely right so first i'd say is you know you have to be careful that you you don't say i need these three things and while they look like different weapons they all use the same like rocket motor or something you know what i mean so you have to be very careful are are you trying to trying to double and triple down on something where you have a single secondary or tertiary supplier to all three of those things. So you do have to separate those. You know, I mentioned two things there kind of the larger LRASM, you know, really long range kind of thing like an LRASM and then maybe something like a, a powered JDAM where I think you're really talking about two separate supply chains. So you definitely want to do that for yourself. Get those set, separate supply chains. But there's still you're right small points of um where you get down to there's only one person making black powder in the united states you know uh you know the triggering powder for a lot of uh weapon systems you know so we're still going to have some uh we need to build some resilience into that system and really that does take industrial policy we've done this once before in the late 1930s early 1940s and we built an arsenal of democracy i think we're gonna have to do it again i don't think we have to do it to the same scale that we did it back then but we have to do it and we have to target the things that imposed cost on China and therefore deter China from taking, you know, precipitous action that would cause a war.
1: I, I think the the whole focus is. Right. I mean, deterrence only works if your adversary looks at you and says, wow, they've got the will, but they also have the capability, right? So it's good the president's making the statements he's making, and folks in Washington are saying what they're uh saying. But ultimately, um, you know, they can also count, right? Tom Carrico of the Center for Strategic and International Studies joined us a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and the good doctor discussed air and missile defenses in the main, especially lessons learned from Ukraine, and and also discussed the defense of Guam. You've long maintained maintained, uh, that this is the Dante's Inferno uh, of policy. Uh, the plan then was to have a service to it, the army to spearhead those defenses. That plan hasn't gone very well. Folks are going back to relook at this. And on top of this, Mark, you've got an adversary that has very deep and very large hypersonic magazines. We are sort of priding ourselves that Kinjal's. Have been shot down by Patriot, but Kinjal is very different than the DF series weapons the Chinese are are deploying, and that Guam is the specific target. It's Anderson Air Force Base, our biggest air base in the region. It's Apra, the most important forward submarine base we have. You know, and that doesn't even talk about the command and control, radar, and intelligence and other purposes uh, the base has. What does the defense of Guam need to look like, and what's the speed of relevance to be able to field these defenses?
3: Well, Vago, you know, as I've written a few times and said on on here, I I was disappointed in in the initial decision making. I think they prioritized like the idea of distributing things that somehow they could get away from the Chinese threat by not having a a singular like Aegis uh, ashore, you know, facility and singular vertical launch system. And so they distribute everything into radar faces that will be not really around the island, but in different locations and, uh, and mobile vehicles with, you know, four missiles each on them. I, I think over time they've realized that they were really pushing the initial op- operational capability into the 2030s if they weren't careful, early 2030s. So they dialed it back. Congress helped them dial it back. They're buying vertical launch cells, you know, the 32-cell Mark 41s. I think they'll get them in. They, uh, they're using a SPY-7 radar, I think they're going to call it a, a tippy 6 TPY-6. Um, I think those are good systems. I think sad does its job, is, you know, which is limited in this case, but does its job. Where we're killing ourselves now is we still don't have a cost-effective short-range air defense system, cruise missile defense system. Um, Ukraine does, thanks to us. Norway does. Uh, the, the U.S. capital region here does, but Guam, you know, uh, Anderson Air Base doesn't. Uh, Nowhere else in Guam does. And and I think we're now we're at the point where the army has kind of like obfuscated and delayed to we're going to probably have to go with IFPIC, uh, which is a army system that is I call the Phoenix Suns of systems. It's always two years away from being two years away. And it's extremely frustrating. But we may be at the point where it is two years away. I'm not sure about that. And I certainly wouldn't integrate it with IBCS uh, initially. I'd put it with the with the historically competent Army FADC2 system and, and get it in Guam. That's the first part, just to get a cruise missile. Then you brought up a whole new can of worms, which is hypersonic glide vehicles. And, and there was some, I, I would, I would say there was some actual accidental misinformation given by the administration on the to the Senate last week when it was kind of implied. We're shooting down hypersonic missiles, but, you know, many senators could have interpreted that as we're shooting down hypersonic glide vehicles. We're not, you know, or, you know, hypersonic, you know, maneuvering cruise missiles. We're not. We're shooting down ballistic missiles that are, in fact, hypersonic, you know, in their trajectory, you know, in their speed when when they're they're launched. To shoot down these maneuvering hypersonic cruise missiles, we're going to need a system. I have a bad feeling that you're not seeing the kind of money going into this. You're seeing... 10 times as much money going into our offensive hypersonics as you see going into our defensive hypersonics. That tells me we don't have a effective program to rally around there because otherwise I have to believe that Kath Hicks and Frank Kendall and other smart leaders in the administration, you know, and, and, and Vice Admiral Hill would be putting money into hypersonic defense. I think we may be having another hole in our swing, you know, you know, we can't hit that curveball, literally a curveball in the case of a hypersonic glide vehicle. And from my point of view, this doesn't mean you kick the can to the 2030s. It means that you make this your Manhattan project, right? You dig down and you find a way to attack this problem and get it solved. The Chinese aren't gonna wait. They're not gonna be like, oh, Marcus of Queensbury rules, we won't break break out this hypersonic maneuvering cruise missile because you don't have a defense for it. They're an authoritarian regime. They will take advantage of our inability to prevent them attacking us.
2: Speaking of Guam for the moment, the Highland was hit by a terrible typhoon. Uh, The bulk of it went through over the last 48 hours. Our thoughts are with everyone there. But just yesterday, the administration allowed Microsoft to publicly disseminate the code used by Chinese hackers to penetrate the cyber systems on Guam. We talk about defense against hypersonics. Electrons move at Mach 1 million. The hacks appear to be aimed at espionage, but also for ways to shut the island down, which means there are persistent vulnerabilities, even though administration after administration has tried to go after this problem. What do we know about what happened there and what do we need to do to defend Guam's and the United States, critical military and civilian infrastructure?
3: Well, you know, you're exactly right. This is this is a big deal. I'm glad it was detected. I'm glad, you know, we're talking about it publicly. Mike Gallagher has to really almost thanked the Chinese for this because they're making his argument. He's making a strong argument that one of the I think he had a top ten for Taiwan was to release yesterday, in fact. And and one of them, six or seven number six or seven was improve our cyber resilience, the cyber resilience of our military mobility, our ability to move things around. That exactly hits Anderson and uh, and it hits the Naval Submarine Base at Guam. You have to be able to protect, you know, back here in the States, our ports, our air systems, our rail systems. You have to be able to protect your national critical infrastructure, your power, your water, your financial services. Look, we've released in the past, we've uh, acknowledged that we found Chinese malware in all the systems I just mentioned. And Russian, and I think we've even said Iranian in some of the systems. Look, this is a case though where we're specifically saying on a known target set that we are we consider highly vulnerable. We're finding their malware, and you're right. Some of it's for espionage, but a lot of it's for a future opportunity to disrupt or damage a system. You know, in a build-up to war or in a, in an actual conflict. So this is a big deal. The good news is you know, Gallagher's committee, the, the uh, CCP committee, you know, bi- the bipartisan CCP committee. And when I say Gallagher's top 10 list, it was actually a bipartisan top 10 list. And that tells you so much about this committee. Uh, yeah, I think it's being run really well by uh, Hakeem Jeffries and Kevin McCarthy. They have good people on this committee who are digging into the ways uh, to get it. And- and there was military stuff, there was human rights issues, and there was economic issues released yesterday. But in the military issues, this exact topic was raised, discussed, and an acknowledgement that we need to address it.
1: I should also point out, not only is uh, Mike doing a terrific job, but uh, also his ranking member, uh, Raja Krishnamurthy. You know, They've been uh, really in, in lockstep. and And a lot like Rob Whitman's, uh, Airland committee uh, showing just an enormous amount of bipartisanship, uh, which is which is terrific to see. Let me just ask you one um, walk-off question, Mark. You maintain the E seven, the new generation of radar plane the U.S. Air Force is going to go to, is critical. Why is it so critical? Because you have in mind not just its broad area of surveillance and air battle management, but also in an air and missile defense role.
3: You know, you're exactly right. When I was the PACOM J3, it became evident to me. In fact, when I was the carrier strike commander out in Japan, it was evident as a PACOM J3. It became clear to me that there was such a delta, a differential between the E3, which, you know, had fine operators on board, but really had legacy, not just uh, engines, but legacy radars and processing equipment versus the new E2D Advanced Hawkeye, and then the wedge tail would come out from Australia, and it would, it would be like the E2D Hawkeye, but with bathrooms and beds and showers, right? So you could go for sustained periods of time. And so it became really obvious to me that we needed that E3. We pushed hard. The Air Force wasn't always there. They were hoping for an overhead satellite solution to this problem. It didn't come fast enough. Now they're fully behind the e 7 the E-7 gives you just dramatic air battle management advantages. It's got good ASA radar and, um, and other s- systems on board that really help you control, You know, help us restore air control over Taiwan at some period in time as the, as the conflict evolves. But more than that, it can also just flying in the airspace between Guam and Taiwan or the Philippines or Japan, serve as a fantastic queuing system for inbound cruise missiles. And the E2D could do the same. We need to get, in fact, I think right now the Navy should have shore-based E2D detachments in Guam doing this mission, both air battle management and uh, air defense. And eventually we should consider dirigibles for this. But in the meantime, we've got to get the E7 out. And the Air Force says it's a priority. And then you find $600 million plus on the unfunded priority list. And you have to ask yourself, in the Air Force's $170, 180000000000 billion budget, how did the 600 million for the E7, a high priority system for the highest priority theater for the fight that Frank Kendall is putting all his effort in, into dealing with, pulling some of the E7 to the left to get it done. How does that money not make the budget and just get in the unfunded? It's frustrating. And you know, sometimes you think Congress will pick it up. Well, because of some shenanigans with money that was given for the E7 last year by Congress and not used properly, I'm not sure they're unfunded for the E7 is gonna get picked up. So this is a double whammy bad, you know, for us. And, and I'm very nervous that we're not going to see the E7 in numbers till the 2030, 20, 2031 20,
1: timeframe. How do you think, uh, just last question, given that we're uh, sort of in uh, the mess, it looks like there is no deal between the president and the speaker. Uh, obviously, we're going to talk about this on the Washington Roundtable tomorrow. But what's your sense on this? Because the, the White House cut the budget at the very last minute which is why a whole bunch of things fell off the list, including the you know alternate engine for the F-35, uh, the E-7 acquisition, even though that made it onto the unfunded list, right? A whole bunch of cascading decisions came from that when everybody thought, hey, we've got the money, we're going to put a robust plan at the last minute it got cut, now we're dealing with fiscal uh, uncertainty. Do you think that it's even reasonable that anything's on the unfunded list is actually going to make it?
3: You know I, I do think you know I, I believe uh, speaking of McCarthy and I think the uh, I think Joe Biden why anyway, has this specifically he's implied it I think defense is not one of the issues being looked at for uh, a reduction and you know obviously you know this this whole thing could lead to a national security disaster you know in terms of like not having con- you know if we get into a, a debt ceiling um, default, this would be really bad for national security I will say one other thing though Admiral Mike Mullen oh, about a decade ago, when asked, what's your number one national security concern, said the mounting debt. Since he said that, it's doubled up to about $31 trillion. So the debt itself is a, is a national security concern. So you do have to balance all these issues together. But I think, Vago, in this case, we're going to see a solution that does not detract from the current DOD uh, proposed budget for 24.
2: Admiral Mark Montgomery from the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Always good to have you with us.
3: Hey, thanks, JJ. Uh, thanks, Vaughn.
2: Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.